eager to be in the book of Romans with you uh, in arguably the most relatable passage in the Bible, amen? Like you hear it and you're like, that doesn't make any sense and then you remember your life and you're like, oh yeah, it does. I totally get this. I also wanna acknowledge this. We have our, um, we have our uh, elementary age kids in the service with us this morning and we do that intentionally once a month. You're free to bring your elementary age kids into the worship gathering every week. But once a month, we very intentionally invite them to participate in the corporate worship gathering because we want to be an intergenerational worshiping church. And so our, our kids, we welcome you. Adults, can we welcome the kids? Tell them we're excited to have them here with us today uh, and that their presence is a great treat uh, to us. Um. You know, Romans 7, it's such a perplexing passage of Scripture, and it's relatable, as I said. I was talking with one of my kids recently, and uh, I was like, why did you hit your brother? And this particular kid uh, was like, you know, uh, to be honest, Dad, I just can't help it. Like, I know it's bad, but I just keep doing it. And I'm like, and I want to get mad. But then I remember Romans 7. I'm like, Paul told us about this. He's like, I just, I know I'm not supposed to hit him, but I just keep hitting him. I can't stop hitting him. And if you're in a place where you just can't stop hitting your proverbial brother this morning, you're in good company as we look at Romans 7. Um, so what were you up to on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2017? Can you remember what you were up to that very night? You probably can't, but I will never forget what I was up to that night. We were visiting some dear friends in the Indianapolis area, and, uh, you know, it was about 7 p.m., and the kids had set up an indoor bounce house at our friend's house. And, uh, you know, things were going great. They were going great, but then the kids started to get bored with just the bounce house uh, after a while, and so they decided, hey, let's turn the lights out and get in the bounce house together. That'll be more fun. And that lasted for about 10 minutes. And then after that, they, they said, you know, hey, Dad, can you throw us inside of the bounce house from the outside while it's dark? Because that would be really fun if we could do that. And me being the fun, adventurous, and sometimes spontaneous father that I am, obliged. And I said, sure, let's do it. And so Caden at the time was six uh, years old. And the, after the first toss, uh, it just went awesome. It was great. There was wide-eyed wonder and giggling voices all throughout the basement of that house. But the second toss did not go so well. Caden hit the mat and began to squeal at unspeakable decibel levels. And as he got up, I noticed one very important thing, that his arm was flopping around like it was not attached to his body. And, and I look at him and I think to myself, this is a dislocated arm. It just needs to be reset. And so uh, I made a lot of assumptions with that decision, uh, most of which not being medically informed at all. Um, and, and, uh, and so I began to grab his arm and, and I began to manipulate his arm uh, in order to reset it because it's New Year's Eve and it's late at the night at this point, but he starts screaming uncontrollably at this point. And then our friend, who just happens to be a medical professional, a pharmacist, she says, you have got to go to the emergency room right now. At this point, it's swelling. It looks really, really bad. 
And so we get into the emergency room, and it's 10 o'clock at this point by the time we get in, and the doctor immediately sees his arm and he says, he needs an x-ray. So he goes in, gives him uh, the x-ray, they give him a little bit of pain medicine, he's, you know, still teary-eyed and, and, and a lot of pain, and the doctor comes in and he says, okay, so the way that we grade uh, <clears throat> broken bones is this, is that we, you know, we'll just call it a mild and a moderate and a severe broken bones. Like, like, that's, like mild would be like a, a hairline fracture that really doesn't need anything. It can be casted. You just need some time. Moderate would mean, like, you know, maybe it needs to be reset and then casted. And severe means that it needs surgery. He said, this is a severe break. And then he showed me this x-ray right here. And uh, that bone is supposed to be, there's, yeah, they're supposed to be, yeah, not like that. And so, anyway, if you weren't queasy before, now you are. But the thing about this is that without the x-ray, I didn't know what the problem was with my son's arm, right? We needed the x-ray to tell us the truth about what was going on with the arm. And without knowing the problem, I was trying to fix the wrong thing. I could have really messed him up that night, right? The x-ray didn't break his arm, the fall did, but the x-ray told us what was true about the arm. We need the x-ray in this life, church. We need the x-ray in our heart. We need the scan. We need to be examined if we're ever going to be able to live a life that's pleasing to God. You see, if we, if we are not searched and known by God, we will continuously think and imagine that the problem is always something that's outside of us as opposed to something that's inside of us. And you could spend your whole life thinking, like the Apostle Paul did, that the worst thing in the world is some type of force that's outside of you, not some type of pull that's inside of you. You know, we think, you know, if my teacher were not so strict, I wouldn't disobey. If my parents weren't so overbearing, I would listen to what they had to say. If my boss was just kind, I would actually accomplish my tasks. If my spouse was just more available, I could really be the person that I desire to be. And while all those instances may be part of the impact on your own spiritual growth, the main thing is what's going on inside of you. In our text today, Paul is letting us in on his own spiritual struggle to grow in Jesus. And it's one of the most invitational passages in all of the Bible. If you're a note taker, here's our big idea for today. Kind of the big theme that we see happening here is that we realize that the real battle in this life is a battle for the affections of your heart. So we've been talking about sanctification in the book of Romans. And if you're unfamiliar with what that word means, Sanctification is part of the salvation process. It's part of how we're saved in Jesus. Most all of the salvation process is all in God's hands with no participation on our part at all. He does all of the saving and all of the giving and we do all of the receiving. We realize he has to give us new hearts that are alive so that we can respond to his call on our lives. He has to gift us with faith to believe the gospel is true he has to justify us and, and acquit us of our guilt before him. He has to bring us back into his family and adopt us into that family. And he has to give us these new resurrection bodies that we will receive at the second coming of Jesus. But there's this one part 
of salvation where he invites us to cooperate with and participate in the process. And that little sliver is what we're talking about in Romans chapter 7 today, that little sliver of responsibility that he's called us to. And Romans 7 walks us through that struggle that we're all in in this life if you are a follower of Jesus. So if you're a note taker, I'll kind of tell you where I'm going. Really three big headings on this. The first one is this. The word of God shows us the real battle that we're actually in. Secondly, the battle is a war for our hearts that is actually between our two natures, the true self and the false self. And thirdly, knowing who wins the war gives us courage to stay engaged in the battle. So let's look at Romans 7, 7 through 14, as we look at the word of God and how it reveals the battle that we're all in. So the, just contextually, the Apostle Paul has been defending all of these arguments, right? I mean, it's, it's interesting because the, the, people, the people of God at this time were really opposed to salvation by grace. And you, think, you might think that's crazy, but I was actually meeting with a man this week who articulated a life that is works-based and a life that is grace-based, and he said, I prefer the one that depends on me. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this isn't, this isn't one of these things that you don't understand, kind of what it means to be saved by grace, but you actually prefer this method over here. And so it's funny because as I was thinking about this meeting that I had this week, I was thinking about Romans 7, and I think there were a lot of people, and maybe many of us too, that prefer the ability to prove ourselves to God because it feels more secure to us in some way. And you know, the reason is, is because we don't actually have to die to ourselves if we live that way. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is there's a, there's a whole nother way to be saved that's far more secure. And it reads like this, Romans 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin. Because it shows us sin is what Paul's saying here. He says, by no means, if it hadn't been for the law, and he gets personal, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through that commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, Paul says. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he asked, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be might shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So Paul's getting personal with us here. He's saying, He's saying and asking us to consider these things about ourselves. He says, look, verse nine says this. I used to think that I was really alive apart from the law. I used to think that I was a really good person and that that was really getting me some, somewhere in the economy of God. I, I used to think that I really had it going on spiritually. I used to think that I really got who God was and, and what I really needed from him and what he really wanted me to do in his kingdom until the law penetrated my heart. It hit me at a heart level. You see, when you look at it on its face value, you say, you know, I'm not that covetousness. I, I'm not that, I don't covet that much. Any, uh, I messed that up. 
I don't covet that much, right? He's, he's saying like, I look at this and it's like, I, I don't really desire what other people have. But then it hit me one day and I realized that I do yearn to possess the possessions that other people have, that I really want what others have. And until God showed his word that he actually did have this heart that coveted all of these things, he said, then something happened, this shift happened within me. I realized that I couldn't not sin. Everywhere I looked, I just wanted to sin more and more and more. And it got so out of control that I couldn't stop. And I was finally able to see that I am dead on the inside. I thought I wasn't that bad until I started becoming more aware of who God actually is and who I have actually become. And this is the place, friends, that we want to avoid like the plague. Some of us come to church just so we can ease the burden of guilt that we feel. And really, what God's word is intended to do in our hearts is to show us that we're dead without the Holy Spirit. You know, it's funny how this happens. I remember a time when I was five or six years old. We used to go in this, I grew up in Kentucky. We used to go in this little country grocery store near our home. And there were, there were all of these model cars that were in the store. There were like these, these big die-cast model cars that were up uh, on the top shelves. And there were these little matchbox cars that were all around, these Hot Wheels cars that were on the bottom. Um, and, you know, I, I loved cars. I had lots of these little Hot Wheels cars uh, at home. Um, and as I remember, these cars at this store, they weren't even for sale. They were just for show. And I, I knew the law of God generally because, in particular, the law of God uh, which says, you know, you shouldn't steal is actually the law of our land as well, right? So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a law that kind of uh, is pervasive in this respect. Um, but but I, wa- I knew that, but I wanted a car from that store. Those cars were different than my cars. And I remember walking in week in, week out, looking at those cars and thinking, I really want one of those cars. Eventually, I worked myself up the courage to steal one of those cars as a five or six-year-old boy. And I honestly can't remember if I ever returned it. It might be in my basement right now. I don't know. Take me in, Michael. Um, (laughs) He's a police officer here. Um, You know, um, and I can't remember if my parents ever found out, but one thing that I do remember is this. I remember the complete and total letdown that I felt in my heart from yielding to sin in that moment. I couldn't believe this truth that I had actually become a criminal because of my desire to have what I didn't have. If all those cars would have just been up for grabs in that little store, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to see what's really inside of me, what I'm really capable of in my flesh. And friends, when we see sin in our hearts because God's word is in our hearts, we see why Jesus is so, so good. If you don't see the sin in your hearts, Jesus will not be good to you. It doesn't matter how we find out that we're sinners, but it matters that we find out that we're sinners. It's then that Jesus comes close to us, and in that moment, as Revelation says, knocks on the door of our hearts, asking to come in and dwell with us. That's what Jesus came for. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came as a friend of sinners, and the word of God is how we know that we need Jesus. 
It's then that he comes in and communes with us. So you ask, what is the role of the law if we now live under grace? Like for for believers, how does God's word uh, penetrate, especially the Older Testament, how does it penetrate our hearts? Well, historically and theologically, there are there believed to be kind of three purposes of the law of God for believers. And I've kind of redefined them. I think R.C. Sproul said these as well, but as a curb and a mirror and a guide, they're helpful kind of word pictures for us. So the three purposes of, of God's law for us, that the first is that it's a curb. Meaning what does a curb do? It, it, it keeps things from going places they're not supposed to go, right? So while the, while the world is totally depraved, it's not absolutely depraved. It's not as bad as, as it actually could be, friends. I know it seems like that sometimes, but things could be a lot worse without the merciful hand of a loving God working his common grace in this world. So the law of God serves as a curb uh, for sin's impact in this world. It also serves as a mirror. This is how the the Apostle Paul was experiencing God's word um, as as the, the law penetrated his heart. It shows us what's really inside of us. And this is what, you know, Paul experienced. The law was a tool against his pride before it, you know, it it was, rather it was a tool for his pride. He would beat people up with the word of God. He would enslave people with the word of God because he was able to keep it from an external point of view, but he was breaking it in his heart all the day long until that day that the Lord cut him to the quick and shattered his heart into a thousand pieces, showing him that he was never what he thought he was on his own. The law was a mirror the Apostle Paul, it's a mirror to our hearts as well. And it's also, for believers, it's a guide, or as John Calvin called it, uh, 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 like a schoolmaster. Once our hearts are made alive in Jesus, it shows us how to walk in Jesus. So our lives are constantly being conformed to the image of Jesus who fulfilled the law. So if we say that we're becoming more like Jesus and our lives are looking less like obedience to the law, we're saying two different things, right? So we're constantly being conformed to the image of Jesus who fulfilled the law. Now, the law cannot save us. Keeping it cannot save us because we cannot keep it. But it does show us how the saved lived. You see the difference? And, and, And when we do what it says... We're operating out of the power of the Holy Spirit and being conformed more and more to look like Jesus. So for us, the law of God is is like this x-ray machine. It's like this magnifying glass. It's like these night vision goggles that cuts through to our hearts. And if if it hasn't laid us bare and broken before God, we probably haven't considered it long enough. You know, and just as a side note, as I've been thinking about just, just the difference culturally, the, the culture's relationship to the word of God now, uh, as opposed to when I became a believer, you know, over 20 years ago, I'm just, I am concerned with the pervasive apathy toward God in this world and the way that even many Christians think about the word of God that he's given to us as a gift to make him known. You know, before I became a believer, it seemed like God's word was just available. It, was, it, was a, it wasn't one of these things that you were just unaware of. It was around, like you kind of swam in the water of God's word because God's word was on display in the world. Um, it, it was clear, and sure, there were lots of legalist, uh, legalistic Christians that would beat you up and beat you down with God's word and make you feel shame. And some people would use it like a ladder to climb, but it was certainly available. But this cultural moment just feels different to me. 
You know, Amos chapter eight, verse 11, Amos prophesies that uh, of a time when, when there would be a famine on the earth, but it wouldn't be a famine of food, rather it would be a famine of the word of God. Now, now I, I know that he was speaking directly about the time you know, before Jesus came, but I think it applies now too. Right now, in this moment, there is a famine of God's word in our city, church. And if you would have told me 10 years ago when we planted New City Church, or around 10 years ago, that, that the most strategic thing that we could do to see the church of God grow was to actually preach the Bible, I would have laughed at you that that would be the church growth method. Just to preach the Bible. Some of you are shaking your heads right now, and I'm crying on the inside because it's true. There are many people in this church that have abandoned secondary convictions that they used to hold so dear because they can't find the word of God in the city. And so we hold it out here in this pulpit, but also this is your responsibility to hold out the word of God too. But it is so tempting to be ashamed of God's word. But, but that's because you know, many followers of Jesus are ashamed of, of God's word, and what happens is the word of the world is suffocating the word of God. And our responsibility is to hold out the word of God. The world is redefining its own law and its own standards to which we must live by, and it contradicts the word of God. I don't have to, I don't have to explain what I mean when I say that. You know, we've, we're, we're learning how to live under the law of this world, aren't we? We're learning how to pivot and, and, and not get crucified by the things that we believe and, and say. But, but we could actually be contradicting the word of God when we're not bold in our proclamation of it and our relationship with it. The world's word is preached through a megaphone every time you pick up your phone, every time you turn on your TV, and it's in every water cooler conversation at work. And if we're not the kind of people that recall the word of God in everyday ordinary situations, you know, speaking the truth in love to one another, our lives will be conformed to another word. A weakening value of his word leads to a moving target on what the war that we're in actually is. And I've been caught up in it too, thinking that the, the, the war that we're actually in is this kind of cultural war, this social justice war, whatever it would be. But the war is a battle for the affections of your heart. And, and the scriptures tell us exactly what the problem is, is that our hearts are sinful beyond repair and the only way forward is in Christ. So Paul talks about this in Romans 7, 15. Let's keep going here. So the battle is a war for our hearts between our two natures, the true self and the false self. Now, I'll just note this, that some, there are some commentators that believe that Paul is actually talking about his life before he became a Christian here. And I'm just gonna say that that's ludicrous. Not like the hip hop artist, but actually crazy, okay? And here's why. Because he, he changes his tone from past tense to first person present tense as he talks about this battle and this struggle. That's the first reason. Now, the second reason is this. It is confirmed in my own life and struggle with sin, right? C.S. Lewis once said uh, that the way that you know that you have friendship uh, is the moment that you're able to look at someone and say this, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. Here's what Paul's saying. Me too, you're not the only one. So we are friends and companions of Paul 
who is a friend and companion of Jesus in our struggle right here. So let's read this struggle. Let's study this struggle through that lens this morning. Paul goes on to talk about this struggle that he has. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I, I, don't, I don't get myself. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. Man, can you relate to that or what? Now, if I, if I do what I don't want, I'm agreeing with the law. I'm agreeing that it is good. So it's, it's like, it's no longer I who do it, but the, the sin that dwells in me that used to define me. So he's saying, I'm coming into an agreement with the law, which I know I can never find life in. It's now dead to me because I died to sin. I'm trying to resurrect what Jesus put in the ground. Verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Friend, do you, do you know that this morning? Nothing good dwells in you. That's the best news I can tell you this morning. You don't have to keep putting lipstick and makeup and masking, all of the things that aren't good that dwell in you. You can die to trying to resurrect those things to give you life. He says, in my flesh, nothing's good in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I don't have the power. I don't have the strength. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if, if I do what I don't want, it's, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I find it to be a law, it's a play on words here, a principle, he's saying, that when I wanna do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in my heart, but I see in my members, in my body, in my life, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are now in a spiritual war. And it's a, it's a war unlike any other battle that you've been in before or that you will be in. Now, being a follower of Jesus means that you believe at least these two things, okay? The first one is this. You have to believe something about yourself and you have to believe something about God. The first thing you have to believe about yourself is this, is that nothing good dwells in your flesh and you are spiritually dead because of sin in desperate need of grace. If you're in here and you believe that, you are teed up for the promises of God that he wants to give to you. So if you're a Christian, you have to believe that about yourself and you have to believe this about God that he loves you so very much that he has actually sent his son to rescue you through his own sacrificial death. Now, if you believe those two truths, you are now in the midst of a spiritual battle. Welcome to the family, right? But it's a battle unlike any other battle you've ever seen before. It's a battle not to take this physical kingdom dominion, but it's a battle for the dominion of your own heart and your affections and your obedience and your love. And the battleground is right on your heart. Proverbs 4.23 in the NIV says this, it says, above all else, so in other words, the most important thing, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The ESV has, has some strong language too. It says, keep your heart with vigilance. Those are fighting words, aren't they? David would pray this in Psalm 51, God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. God, this battle is in my heart. David prays, God, please create this, this, this purity inside of me where, I'd, where, where I want to do, I actually do. 
I know I'm lustful, David says, but I want more of you. I want to be a man after your own heart. So why does scripture tell us to guard our heart if we're not in a war? If they're not open to the vulnerability of being taken captive by something else? But how many of us ever get much thought and attention at all to our inner being, what's going on inside of us? We're so busy, concerned with the posture and appearance of how we live among other people that we don't have time to pay attention to our hearts. But as followers of Jesus, the residue of that old sinful nature is close at hand in every encounter of God. That's what Paul said. The, the good that I want to do, I know that evil lies close at hand. Peter would say that the, that the enemy is like a, a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. Every time that you want to obey Jesus, that's what you're up against. Why does, so as followers of Jesus, you know, that old sinful nature's close at hand in every counter. And, you know, I think we could call him the false self. That's the only version of ourself before we come to Jesus, right? We don't have a new nature yet. You know, that, that, that false self, that, that, that old man, as Paul will say, you know, that person that collapsed temptation every single time he faced it. That woman that struggled with body image and starved herself because she was disgusted with the way that she looked. That man that bullied up and beat others up with his words because of his own insecurity that person that manipulated others at all costs to get what he or she wants, that may feel like that is who you will always be. That might seem like the most real version of who you are, but in Christ, that is not what is most true of you, friend. That is a shadow of who you are that Jesus is destructing as you follow him and his, and his word tears you apart, he tears you down. The true self is that you are a man or woman made in the very image of God. You are not a lost cause. You are not a failure. You are not a waste. The sin that you commit is because you think you have to be your own God. But now as a follower of Jesus, you can surrender that role to the one who actually has the power to save you and redeem you. You have a good God who has sacrificially come to know fully who you are and what you've done, and now it's time for you to surrender to those old false ways of living. Now, that journey that you're on, that Paul is on, that he tells us and invites us into, is a journey that will take much longer than you think that it should, but he will finish what he started in you, friend. The residue of that false self within you does this. It attempts to overcome sin in its own strength, but the true self overcomes sin with an entirely different source of power, the power that is gifted to us upon our conversion, the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to overcome sin, you have to surrender to fighting sin in the power of the flesh. Here's what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12, because I think we say, okay, how do we do that? How, how do we fight the way that God has, has, has drawn us to himself to fight in the power that he's given us? How do we do that? 2 Corinthians 7 through 10 says this, and this is a passage that I, it's probably my favorite passage in the Bible that I keep coming back to because it's, it's a time where Paul thought that he was supposed to be further along in the journey than he was. 
It's a time that he thought, man, I still shouldn't be struggling with this, but I am. Verse seven says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he was having this amazing experience with the Lord. He says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh and it was a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, boasting of myself. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, that it should leave me. I shouldn't deal with this anymore. But Jesus said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. Now, this isn't a license for us to sin, but it is an invitation to struggle. We cannot both experience grace that transforms our lives and be strong in the flesh at the same time. The law kills and it continues to kill anything in us that we think can stand against sin in our own power. And, and, and just in the moment of desperation and vulnerability, what does God do for us? He clothes us with righteousness and grace. He says, it's finished. And the question to us is this, are we weak enough to be in this battle? Are we actually, are we actually, do we actually see ourselves as powerless enough to engage in the battle that God has called us to? Brennan Manning was an incredible, incredible guy. He was, the, and the most incredible thing about Brennan Manning was his courage to be honest about his battle. He was weak enough to be saved. He told the world the gospel through his own story. He talked openly about his struggle and the fact that he couldn't remain a Catholic priest because he desired to be married. And he left the priesthood, got married, and then got divorced. He was honest about his struggle with alcoholism that started as a kid. And that, you know, you would like to believe that, that when, he, when he became a believer that that just kind of went away. But guess what? It didn't. And here's what Brennan Manning said about his own journey that I can relate so strongly with. When I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I, and I doubt. I, I hope and I get discouraged. I, I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and yet suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm, an ira I'm a rational animal and I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. He was able to joke about himself, but but Brennan, Brennan died recently. And the thing about Brennan's life now is that he's no longer in that battle, right? He's new. He's fully in that nature that God has given him, that spiritual nature, that new man. And you could fill in the blank with your own struggle here, whatever that is for you. I know, I know this, though, that the enemy wants you to conceal it and hide it and fight it in, the, in your own power, and you'll never experience any kind of victory if you do that. Knowing who wins the war, friends, gives us courage to stay engaged in the battle. Here's how Paul closes out Romans 7. He says this, here's what I see when the law of God penetrates my heart. Wretched man that I am. That is what is true of the old me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I still serve the law of sin. So Paul gets to the end of his rope. He says, I can't keep living in this battle anymore. I can't keep living this double life that I'm engaged in. I can't ever seem to be encouraged because it feels like I am making no progress in Jesus. And we, just like Paul, cry out and say, I'm a wretched man, I'm a wretched woman, I'm a wretched child, I cannot not sin. What is wrong with me, God? I need to be rescued all over again. And as you, like Paul, look at the accumulation of your life and you feel like that, I want you to know this, you're not alone. And I think, I think we, we're supposed to feel that to some degree if we're ever going to step into the power that God uh, promises us, us to walk in. Because the false you, it comes to this truth and is overwhelmed with guilt and shame. See, I knew I could never be a Christian. I knew I could never walk into this. But the, the true version of who you are and who you are becoming uh, is supposed to respond to this because you see, God doesn't mute the conviction that you feel. I think sometimes we feel like, okay, I, 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 should, I should not sin. Like that's the way forward. Well, God wants to bring awareness of your sin so you will, be, you will treasure Jesus all the more. See, what God does in the power of the gospel is he silences the condemnation that dwells within us uh, by at the very same time giving us the capacity to experience rescue and deliverance. So we can feel conviction, not condemnation, and rescue and deliverance in the very same moment because of the power of the Holy Spirit, church. Here's what Tim Keller says about this as we, as we land the plane here. What's the, what's the power of the Holy Spirit doing in us? Opening our heart to experience two truths at the same time. Keller says this, all of life is a battle between two selves, but there's a different war before you become a Christian from the war that happens after you become a Christian. What Paul's trying to show us here is there's a war between the selves that happens before you meet Christ. And then there's a war between the selves that happens after you meet Christ. The war between the selves before you meet Christ is a world without hope. You cannot win. The war after you meet Christ, you cannot lose. Before Jesus, you were in a battle you could never win. But in Jesus, friend, you are in a battle that you can never, ever lose. And the beautiful invitation from Jesus is this, is that we might have the courage to stay engaged in the battle with our whole hearts before God, experience, experiencing his good pleasure on our lives because we actually believe that our hearts are something worth fighting for. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.